Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. As always on the program, I try to cover a range of art forms and uh, a range of conversations that go from a show that you can see now or experience now online through to kind of some of the bigger picture issues that are impacting on the creative industries across the country, particularly at the moment uh, because of the COVID-19 epidemic. My next guest has just joined me on the line. Uh, Evelyn Richardson is the Chief Executive of Live Performance Australia, the peak body for the live performance industry, covering everything from the major music festivals and stadium tours through to performing arts arts, companies, uh, theatre companies, dance companies, even comedy. So uh, one of the reasons I was very keen to get Evelyn on the show this morning is because uh, Live Performance Australia are talking about a two-year recovery plan that they're developing to help the arts emerge from the COVID-19 shutdown and its impact. Evelyn, good morning to you. Why is it necessary to develop a plan like this? Well, I think at this stage, and we're very much focused. We've got a two-year time frame that we're working to because we believe that'll be it'll be that takes that long to get us back to where we were or close to where we were before we were shut down. I mean, our immediate priority is to is just mapping our roadmap to reopening all of our theatres and venues across the country. Um, and it's, you know, obviously, it's important to do that so that we we've got a time frame that we can work to, and then we can put in place what ha- what needs to happen at each point in order to to get us open. Um, we're working on that that timeline now. We're working on drafting best practice guidelines for, you know, work safety for our staff and for our, you know, artists and crew and, and our audiences. Um, and then we're also scoping the recovery plan in terms of what sort of government investment and support we're going to need in order to, you know, reboot and, you know, recover from what's been a pretty significant impact on our industry due to COVID-19. Now, how likely is it that the federal government will contribute to this kind of uh, long-term plan to bring the arts back out of shutdown, given that to date, despite the fact that uh, live performance contributes $4 billion annually to the economy, uh, the, the federal government has only offered an additional $27 million, which is a, a pretty paltry figure in terms of a kind of arts support package, particularly when you compare that to the, I believe it's $49 million to date that the Victoria state government has invested in the sector? Yeah, I think we've, we've been, clearly we've been very disappointed in, in, in the government's response to supporting our sector at, at, during the crisis point of COVID-19. I guess we're, we're, we're very much focused and we've, we've sent a very clear message that if we're going, if, you know, we're, we're a central part of any recovery. I mean, cult, arts and entertainment is going to be very important as we move through this, but we're not going to be able to to, we won't be there on the other side unless government help us do that. So, you know, we've got a we think there are a range of clear measures and and government investments that are going to be required because of the impacts on the sector to enable our venues to reopen, to enable our companies to start rehearsals and get you know get shows back on on stage, and to you know if the government's focused on reopening the economy and jobs and employment and growth, which is what they've very clearly stated, then. You know, in order for our our industry to do that, we're you know specific targeted investment is going to be required. 
Let's break things down a little bit to look at both first the short-term and then long-term plans in uh, in terms of restoring the live performing, performing arts sector to, to the state of health it was in previously. Uh, the federal government, for example, in the short term is talking about moving through stages one, two and three of coming out of lockdown. Stage two would allow cinemas to reopen for audiences of 20 and presumably smaller theatres such as, uh, I don't know, the Butterfly Club here in Melbourne, for example. Stage three will allow gatherings of up to 100 people, which then might allow some of, again, some of the the, the middle tier of, of theatres to reopen to audiences. How long before you are expecting kind of some of the larger theatres to be able to open their doors to the public again? Well, the, big, the government, have, government have asked us, you know, what what is required and when in order to reopen. I mean, one of the one of the clear messages that we've given government, both at state level and federally, is that for our for our venues and our theatres, I mean, opening at, at reduced capacity at twenty or thirty percent simply not commercially viable, and we and we won't be doing it. Um, so while in those first initial stages there may be some activity and there might be some smaller activations from a an industry point of view, certainly in those first three stages, we, we don't really see our industry operating at any level um, between here and July. So we're looking at stages four, five and six and what that might look like. I mean, for, for, for us, uh, when our theatres reopen, we've got to have full houses and that's whether you're a you know, 100 or 200 or 500 seat venue or you're, you're a 1,000 or 2,000 seater. The costs that are involved in terms of putting on shows um, you know, it's just not commercially viable to do that. So, so we're we're working on what kinds of ways we can, you know, what sort of health and hygiene and what kind of other measures would we be putting in front in place, front of house, back of house. What sort of tracing and tracking and and te- technological resources would, would would can we utilize in order to, you know. Um, give audiences confidence that when they come back to our theatres that they're safe places to be um, and that we've got, you know, mechanisms and processes in place so that we can, you know, respond to, you know, situations as we move forward. But, I mean, I think the key message is that we're not unlike the airlines or hospitality in that regard. I mean, the as we, we certainly recognise from, you know, here to the end of July, there are very strict limitations which will continue to apply. But as we move through into spring and summer, then we're, you know, we need to, you know, be looking at that differently in terms of, um, you know, what might be possible. Um, And certainly from our point of view, you know, our theatres will be reopening when we can, you know, welcome our audiences back to a full house and the sort of experience that, that, that they'll be looking for. So certainly for um, a production, say, of the scale of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, that uh, ability to reopen, to welcome full houses uh, and to to welcome audiences so that they feel safe in the theatre is clearly going to be an important issue. What about economic stimulus to ensure that the industry can be safe? I understand that you're calling for low-interest loans and a tax offset system uh, similar to the 40% tax offset available to the feature film industry? Yeah, I think that's going to be really important. I mean, firstly, I would say that we'd be like, we would be wanting to see the extension of JobKeeper. That would be at one priority because clearly, we, you know, we'll be coming a little bit slower than some other, other sectors. We do want to see tax incentives similar to 
the film industry. The investment pipeline for our industry, particularly for commercial theatre and commercial musicals, has been completely destroyed, both globally and locally. So there are going to be issues in New York and the West End where a lot of, you know, product, you know, comes from um, into Australia where we get the licences and then set up our own Australian production. Um, a lot of investors right across the world now have been burnt. You know, this is a global pandemic with global economic impacts. If we're wanting to see drive commercial production, um, you know, in Australia, which employs a lot of people, puts a lot of art, gives a lot of artists and creatives and crews work, we've got to be able to offer investors something, and we've got to be we're going to be competing internationally for that money. So, tax incentive piece is very important. We're also going to need business recovery grants right across the sector, both our commercial sector, but also a significant investment into the Australia Council, which is our biggest funding mechanism for the performing arts. Um, not everybody gets funding through the Australia Council, and that you know that obviously needs to be considered. But 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 it is the biggest funding. Uh, mechanism for all of our companies and, and all of those companies employ a lot of people um, and in order for them to be developing work and, and getting people employed again, the Australia Council, which has seen its resources, as you know, depleted you know, significantly uh, in the last 10 years, it's going to be more important than ever to support them to invest in the sector. Um, we have flagged low-interest loans, for again, for um, helping on the investment side, particularly for commercial works. Um, and the other, the other um, I think, thing we, we want to talk with government about is insurance underwriting, um, similar to what you do see in film, particularly for insurance is going to be very difficult in this environment, and the concern we have is we're asking producers and companies to take risks and, and put in pre-production and invest in shows, um, but it has to be, you know, some underwriting in case we saw a second wave, and which is always a risk. None of us hope that we see that, um, but in order for companies and producers to have confidence, they've already lost, you know, half a billion dollars. If they're going to be able to, with confidence, invest you know, the limited funds that they've got, um, and then there was to be, you know, a second wave, then there needs to be some provision by government to support that, that kind of scenario. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Evelyn Richardson, who's the Chief Executive of Peak Body Live Performance Australia, about LPA's two-year recovery plan for the performing arts sector. Now, um, there's two points I wanted to pick up on there, Evelyn. Uh, you mentioned earlier an extension of JobKeeper. It seems like already some uh, elements in the federal government are already talking about kind of rolling back JobKeeper early. Uh, clearly, you're keen to see that extended, and I presume that extension would then also mean extending the uh, access to JobKeeper for people who currently aren't eligible, such as, I don't know, um, sound engineers and roadies who might work, uh, instead of having one contract for 12 months, which they I understand they need to be eligible for JobKeeper, they might have 12 contacts, uh, contracts over 12 months as well. So is that an area in which you're lobbying government as well? Well, we have asked government and we have put proposals to government to extend JobKeeper and we do think there are gaps. I mean, I think the ones that you've mentioned, we've also got, you know, shows that have been have, have been cast and that those casts, they might, they have signed contracts, at, at, you know, in, in March, but they hadn't necessarily started the show and we, we believe they should have been, they should have been eligible. Um, and we also saw all of our government venues and our art centres 
um, denied access to JobKeeper, and they're, they're all significant employers. So uh, I think that, that's been very disappointing that, 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 you know, government hasn't responded to that. Um, with, respect, with respect to extending it, we, we, just, we think it's important that government, you know, takes account of the fact that there will be various industry sectors and will be one of them that will require JobKeeper beyond September, and that needs to be on the table. Um, they've flagged that obviously they've they've got a review point in June and they'll do that. I think it's very premature to be talking about winding it back when we're only six weeks into a pandemic. And in fact, most people have only got their first JobKeeper payment, you know, last week and this week. So I think we've got a fair way to go before um, you know, you know, you know, JobKeeper should be, you know talked about being wound back. I absolutely agree with you there. The other point I wanted to raise and something that I'm sure will be of interest to many Triple R listeners, uh, in terms of the live music sector uh, and in particular music festivals and international tours, how long realistically do you think it will be before we see, uh, the, I don't know, uh, music festivals and international tours ramping back up in Australia? Well, I think the first thing we'll see with music festivals, I mean, we very much expect that we'll see a domestic-led recovery, so there'll be a real opportunity for our Australian artists and bands, and particularly in the live music space, to be, um, you know, we expect the lineups to be Australian-based rather than, you know, um, international. Um, not not necessarily across the board. There will be festivals that still have those international lineups, but we know Falls Festival, for example, has already announced. It's you know an all Australian lineup for December. Um, we're, we we don't at this point have clear sight lines for when we might see those, but we we do want to you know obviously we're going to be talking with government about when we think that might be feasible as we work that, that way through our way through it. Um, and with respect to the international um, borders, um, it's it, you know it, obviously if we can if we create a, a, a trans Tasman bubble with New Zealand, then we we can see some movement between the two countries, and it may be that we can bring artists in uh, internationally, and then they can do a you know an Australian New Zealand touring circuit. So all of all of those things will be um, considered. Um, I think you know we've got state based border controls that that have got to be addressed too with various states. You know, not all states are open at the moment, so obviously, you know, we want to see those activated because a lot of our our festivals and our tours move around the country, um, and you know, clearly, we need to work through what might be possible with respect to you know um, artists that might be coming in internationally and how they might come in and, and how we might get them touring. Well, I look forward to seeing how all of this eventuates. Obviously, uh, on many levels, both as a somebody who's passionate about attending live performance, but also somebody whose job it is to report on the sector. I'm keen to see how things develop, and I'm particularly keen to read more about Live Performance Australia's two-year recovery plan. So, Evelyn Richardson, Chief Executive of LPA, please do keep us in the loop here at Triple R, and thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. It's time now to turn the topic of conversation to the visual arts, but visual arts with a message and a motive. I'm joined on the line by Kent Morris, who's the CEO of the organisation 
The Torch, who since 2011 have been hosting uh, an exhibition of art by Indigenous people currently incarcerated or recently released from the justice system. Ken, it's a program which uses culture to help people rebuild their lives. Is that correct? Yes, Richard, that's the, that's the crux of it, to try and put back the fragments and the disconnections and, and the gaping holes that often Indigenous men and women feel and experience, which can lead them into the criminal justice system. So it's based around connection to culture, it's based around learning your culture and then expressing that and sharing it with the broader community. It's for I think for people who sometimes think of the arts as either a frivolous pursuit or something that's just done purely for entertainment or aesthetic kind of value, this kind of program is a real reminder that, as you say, that art connects people, strengthens people, strengthens culture. Oh, absolutely. And look, interestingly, for First Nations Australians across the country, we don't have a word for art because art is, what, what, what is perceived as art is just part of our everyday life. It's so interwoven into our culture and into our everyday lives that it's part of a, just a living existence. So when those connections to identity and culture and kinship and country are broken, they could, there's a real discord. So art for Indigenous Australians is excruciatingly important and also it's the way for us to really share our stories and connect with the broader community and so we can all join in this journey of discovering and understanding Indigenous culture and the important elements around it. Now, what for many years, uh, Torch has been presenting the exhibition series Confined, a, a gallery exhibition of art. Uh, the challenge at the moment, of course, is that presenting an exhibition physically in the, the real world is a bit of a challenge. Um, so how have you adapted uh, Confined 11 for the era we currently live in? Absolutely. And like many organisations, we've had to completely reinvent the wheel. Um, but the annual Confined exhibition is, is the key event for the Indigenous Arts and Prisons and Community Program. And for the 286 artists who are exhibiting their works, many for the first time, it's that crucial step to share those stories, to connect to the community and looking forward to reintegrating positively back into the community upon release from prison. So we had to scour the globe, really, to find an organisation that could support us to present 300 artworks in a, visual, in, a, in a virtual environment. So over in Berlin with Kunst Matrix, we worked very closely. The 300 works are presented across three beautiful New York warehouse-style galleries, which people can navigate as if in our annual confined exhibition that would be at a physical gallery. We've curated it with the same concepts and themes and Indigenous sort of worldview in the curatorial, but we've been able to add some very exciting elements because we are in the virtual world. The fact that people can not only then do a virtual walkthrough of the exhibition and get a sense of how it looks, but then look at individual artworks strikes me as a really important part of this because the the sales from uh, the the art kind of support uh, the the artists themselves. Uh, so once they're released, look absolutely, and on look on the strength of the program and on. Decades of hard work by Indigenous elders and community members with the Victorian government four years ago were able to sell work for men and women in the TORCH program. 100% of the sales from the artworks goes to men and women in the program, held in trust while in prison or directly to those in the post-release program, and building that sense of economic stability around a connection to the industry, which is non-discriminatory and provides opportunity for cultural exploration, but also to generate a legitimate income and one that builds a sense of pride and confidence 
that can lead to new pathways opening up. Now, we have some sensational artists in the program that are connected to commercial galleries, been collected by the National Gallery of Victoria and other organisations. What our key message is, is through this process, connection to culture, expressing that and sharing it, the men and women in the program find their pathway. Is that in the arts? Is it into employment and education outside the arts? This is happening all the time. But the process and the arts industry and connection to new people and expressing stories, this is the key. Culture is the key and connection back to the community is the key for new pathways to open up. And the, the confined exhibition, that's what it's all about. Now, um, Ken, I'm curious to know, in terms of kind of data and statistics, governments are always saying, kind of, give us data, give us stats, give us numbers to prove the value and the benefit of these kind of programs. I'm wondering what kind of statistics you have to, to demonstrate the, the success of this program, given that um, levels of recidivism can sometimes be confronting uh, and, and staying out of the justice system for people once they're caught up in it can be a challenge. How successful have the, the kind of visual art programs that the Torch is running been in helping people rebuild their lives and reconnect with the community in a meaningful way? Yeah, look, it's an excellent question. Um, and look, just to contextualise it, for 2.8% of the population, Indigenous Australians make up close to 30% of the prison, prison population, on average 15 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous Australians, and return to prison rates, recidivism rates are in that 60 plus percent zone. So a recent evaluation, which is available on our website, uh, shows that return to prison rates for men and women who stayed connected to the TORCH program upon release, so of course we run the program in the prisons with a view to the future in the post-release, that those that stayed connected upon release, the return to prison rate was 11%, which is extraordinary when you think that the, the average is around 60%. So the the program provides the tools and the support and the services that the men and women have to come, and they all do have that desire for change. None of the men and women in the program want to be in prison. There's a whole lot of uh, circumstances and reasons that we won't discuss here today around Indigenous incarceration. But the key element is to be able to create change, to break the reoffending cycle. And how can we do that? Well, we've got to provide new opportunities and new ways forward. And culture is the key. Connection back to the community is the key through the arts, which, again, doesn't discriminate, opens up a whole new world of opportunity. And building economic stability is also crucial by the sale of the artworks. Now, tonight from 6pm, there's a virtual launch of the exhibition on uh, the Torch's Facebook page. Uh, and if people want more information about that launch and about Confined 11 more generally, uh, just go to thetorch.org.au forward slash exhibition and click on the link for Confined 11. Uh, but... Tell us about the range of artworks that are presented because these works are for sale uh, and I presume we're talking primarily, what, uh, 2D works, painted, drawn, etc.? Yeah, absolutely, and that, that launch will be sensational. I'm still getting nervous because I think we have a physical launch every year. There's a big opening, you know, when you get nervous before it's, it's a big event, but today you can sit back and relax and watch it on uh, Facebook for the virtual launch. Um, yeah, just look... The main medium is, is our paintings. Uh, that's the, the main medium available in the prisons. But we have a broad range of expressions within that because we have language groups in the program from all around the country. Most of the language groups are from the southeast, as we define it, from Victoria and New South Wales. There's artworks and language groups from every state of the country. So the diversity and range is quite extraordinary, and the program tries to build that connection to each person's individual story and culture to create that uniqueness and that kind of strengthening. Um, 
I've lost my train of thought. And, uh, and, <laughs> uh, given that there's, I understand, over, what, 300 artworks kind of that people can uh, kind of look at as they're walking through the exhibition virtually, and how many artists are participating in Confined 11 this year? Right, so uh, the first year I put Confined on, which was uh, back in 2011, there were 49 artists exhibiting 62 artworks, and that was a huge increase on the previous three years. This year we have 286 individual artists exhibiting 300 artworks, and I've reconnected with my trade of thought. There's beautiful bush-dyed scarves. There's incredible wooden artefacts and objects and belongings. We have a whole array of, you know, there's carved emu, these beautiful woven baskets from the, the women working at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre and Tarangower Prison. So there's a, a huge range of three-dimensional works and works that are available that don't have to go on your wall, they can go on your table or elsewhere. But people will find a, a huge variety of not only expressions and cultural identities, but a range of objects as well. For more information about Confined 11, as we said, which is a, an exhibition of work by Indigenous people in prison and recently released from, uh, from prison and involved in the Torture's community programs, it's online launching tonight at 6pm uh, and running through until the 7th of June. Jump online, thetorch.org.au forward slash exhibition. Just click on the link there for Confined 11. You can, uh, from tonight, you can celebrate the launch, then you can browse the artwork, stroll virtually through the exhibition and see kind of over 300 pieces of work from artists. And I've been chatting with uh, the CEO of The Torch, Kent Morris. Kent, thanks so much for joining us. And Chookers for tonight's opening. I hope it's a, a great virtual success. Thanks, Richard. Really appreciate the support. Triple R. Uh, now, my next guest has just joined us on the line. Sarah Goods is a Helpman Award-winning director and the Associate Artistic Director of the Melbourne Theatre Company. Sarah, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you too. Now, one of the things I've been thinking of doing on this show for a while is introducing a, a segment um, called Demystifying the Arts in which we kind of try to break down what some people in the arts actually do because I know that... I think I know what a director does, I know what a dramaturg does, but not everybody does. So, Sarah, you're first cab off the rank, so thank you for allowing me to, to be a, an experimental new segment. Oh, no worries. Looking forward to it. <laughs> so, before I ask you the, the basic question, what does a director do, the first thing I wanted to know was, when did you decide that directing was what you wanted to do? Because I get the feeling it's not like, I don't know, when you're eight years old and you go, I want to be a paleontologist and dig up dinosaur fossils. Did you have that realisation <laughs> at, at, at age eight that you wanted to work as a theatre director? And how did that decision come about? Um, well, it was a much longer, windier uh, path to the waterfall, so to speak. Um, and I think that was uh, part of the product of the time in which I kind of left school and emerged into the world. Um, so to start with, I, I travelled a lot and then I um, studied literature. So my major was in um, English literature, majoring in um, American literature and Latin American playwriting and... Um, but um, and then I started doing some acting, and then from acting I came around into um, directing. But that was that was a you know a, a long time coming, and I think the main reason for the move over was the feeling as um, as an actor um, trying to get work, 
and then actually going, you know, um, you, with, as a director, you can find a play and then pull a team of people together and, and create a piece. And I, I, I sort of found that to be a really engaging um, because I think the thing I love most about theatre is its collaborative kind of core. And as a director, you, you're kind of the most, you know, you've got to be the beginning of that bigger collaboration. Now, that's an interesting point to un, unpick a little bit because, yes, it's a collaborative art form, but as director, you're also in charge of a production, so to speak, aren't you? You're the one who is deciding uh, in collaboration with kind of the visual design, the, the set designer, the costume designer, the sound designer, kind of the actors themselves. Yes, they are responsible for bringing their own work into the production, but as director, you're the, the kind of central point around things orbit and so to an extent you have control over that collaborative process. Is that the case? Um, yes and no. I think every every director is going to give you a different answer to that and and no one director is going to have the same kind of approach to it. But I actually don't see um, it like that. I actually see that once the decision to, to do a play, which can come from a whole different reason if you're working in a main you know, a, a main stage theatre company or, or independently, once that decision ha has been made to do that play, um, I usually find that it's a sort of series of questions that are usually the hook into doing that play, of why you want to do it and why now, that question that, you know, I think most artists ask is, you know, why this play, why now? And then it will be very much for me about who I'm going to work with um, artistically in the creative team. So the designer, the lighting designer and the sound designer, I will include in that conversation right from the beginning. So I actually, even before I've made any sort of concrete decisions, in fact, I try and not make concrete decisions um, for as long as possible. So you're actually really genuinely open to the offers and the ideas that your, your artistic team are going to bring as you as a group decide how you're going to approach this play and what kind of angle you're going to hold it up to the light in and, um, and what po possible pathways or dramaturgical kind of approach you're going to take to the play. And I try and keep that openness um, alive for as long as possible in the rehearsal room as well. I think um, if... If, and it's not a it's not a kind of conscious manipulative thing either, but I actually find if I've made too many decisions before I go into something, I'm I'm not open to what can just organically arrive. Um, so my feeling as a director is that you do you are responsible for the overall kind of world or universe of the world that you're creating, and the sort of tone and the look and the feel. But ultimately, I want to be as open to what um, everyone is going to bring to the piece as well. And I think the more you, the more I've done it, the more I'm able to kind of hold hands with those two things. One's a very kind of organic thing, and one is a very technical thing. Because obviously, you do have to have deadlines for design. You've got deadlines for the rehearsal period, and very, very strict deadlines with once you hit the theatre. Um, so it's this constant oscillating between, I think, the organic and the very practical. And I do feel that we're a, we're a group of bowerbirds in a way and you want to be as open and responsive to what each artist is going to bring to that from their life experience, from their skill sets, from their professional experience, um, 
and just their ideas and thoughts. And the the richer that soil is, the I find um, the stronger the world of the play you create together is. I love the fact that you have that kind of organic approach, that you know the artists you want to work with, but you're not dictating to them, I'm doing this play and I want it to have this look, this tone. You're encouraging them to bring their own ideas into the mix before you lock yours down. Step us back a moment. Talk to us about the process of choosing a play. You mentioned kind of why this play, why now? Kind of uh, whether you're uh, perhaps early in your career, if you were working independently, now you're working main stage with a major company. How do you select the plays that you want to direct? Obviously, sometimes it may be the case of the literary manager arguing the case for a new work or the artistic director saying, I think we should do this and cast so-and-so because it will kind of resonate with our subscriber base. But talk to us about the process of selecting a work and then how you begin to break it down in the early kind of reading and workshopping stage before you really get into the meat of the rehearsal? Um, well, I think that's exactly right. What you said is that sometimes within a company there'll be a play that's been under commission and, um, and we know that we're going to do a production of that play and uh, I will have been suggested to direct it or I will talk to the writer and it's about that connection between the director and the writer. You know, the writer might choose that they, they don't want that director, they want another director, um, and about finding out whether you're the right person for, for that play and vice versa. Sometimes there'll be, um, you know, within a company they'll need, you know, a new work from overseas um, and they'll ask you if you would direct it. Um, you can always, you know, you do still have to find... The, the passion or the, what the hook is for you. I have a couple of times just thought, I just don't know how I'd find my way into that play. And uh, most artistic directors will always want the person who's directing the play to, to really be passionate about it or know how and why they want to do it. Um, and then occasionally, you know, I will work with a, with a writer on a commission and, and follow that all the way through. And then occasionally you, you have an idea for a play which you're able to kind of, you know, tackle over the line and, you know, um, you've kind of been with it the whole way through. So you've got to be able... Well, I've found in my experience to be flexible to what the needs of the company are and what the needs for you are as a director and what you think, you know, the, the stories we should be telling today, which ultimately is what you always want to be holding at the forefront of your mind is why do we want to tell this story now? And if we tell it again, in what way are we, are we going to learn from it or, um, or is it going to open up thoughts or questions in us that we need to ask right now, you know? I love that saying from, you know, the Theatre of Cruelty book where he says, you know, every, uh, there needs to be an abscess that needs to be drained, you know? in society and a, and a player and artwork needs to, to be um, attempting to do that. Now, that's not always possible in a main theatre company to be able to work, you know, with, on something as sort of profound as that. But, um, but ultimately, it, it should be the function of art is, is to help us understand the times we're living in. Now, you mentioned kind of finding that hook, that way into a play. Do you become aware of that way in at the first reading of a script or does that come through interrogating the work in a workshopping process, for example, perhaps uh, in, an, uh, in an earlier draft? 
Um, it can vary. Sometimes it can be a very strong immediate response from the first read. Other times it can be much, much later. But you do need to have, I feel like you need to have got a very firm grip of what the main hook is before you start to design the play. Um, because, you know, then it's very, um, very telling in terms of which direction you're going to be going with it from that point onwards. But quite often interrogating the play with the designer is, is that process for me. Um, when we both together really come up with an idea that that is, that is going to be the central kind of driving engine of the piece or um, we're going to interrogate the piece in this particular way. Now, once you've selected a play and you've chosen uh, the creative team you're going to work with, what happens next? Is there a process? Kind of, how do you go from that process to script readings to rehearsals to the, the actual opening night of the performance? Um, well, once, once you've been through that stage with the um, creative team, and quite often I'll go to someone like Paul Jackson and say, you know, would you be interested in working on this play and why would you be interested in working on this play? So I try to ask them the same questions I'm asking myself. And then what generally happens is you, you sort of need one or two of your kind of main cast members' casts that you will then... Um, sort of build the rest of the cast around in a way. And at a big theatre company, that's, you know, someone that you're going to have in the brochure um, um, and then you're going to... You don't have to have it fully cast by then, but you will then start to sort of explore casting around that person. Um, and you will have auditions over that period. The design process, we... At uh, Melbourne Theatre Company, we design a long way out, so it's about a good three or four months where you're um, presenting your first white card, which is when you, um, with the production team within the company, you sit there and it's literally what it means. The designer has built the set but just using white cardboard, so there's no colour or detail on it. And you're, you have to talk through with the company um, what your vision for the play is, what you're going to need. They then take that and do a um, costing of that. Then they come back to you and say, look, we can't afford this, you, or you need to rethink this moment because we can't, that, we can't make that work. Um, they, they might present you with um, the build timetable of a whole heap of shows happening at the same time, which might restrict what's available or the crew that's available. You then go back and you and the um, designer and the lighting designer sound designer, you know, you rethink your design if you need to, change it. Sometimes you can do huge changes from white card to final design. And then you pre present the final design, which will have costume drawings, a fully um, rendered uh, model box, and, um, and very clear ideas of what the lighting designer is going to need space-wise and plotting-wise in order to make the production happen. Um, and then you, you pretty much would have cast by then, but sometimes you can cast much later. At the moment, you know, a lot of um, actors are getting a lot of television work, so they're not available, or there's um, uh, a lot of people going overseas, a lot of people, you know, there's a whole heap of things going on. Someone might be available, you might cast them, they might pull out. Um, so casting generally is, is done a fair way out, but sometimes can, you know, be happening up until a month before you start rehearsal. Then you start rehearsal for a new work, a new Australian work or a, a new work, you have five weeks rehearsal. For a non-new work, it's four weeks. 
at the end of that period, you have a company run where the company comes and watches the play. You start getting a lot of feedback from the literary department or the um, artistic director. Um, you then move into the theatre where you have pretty much nearly two weeks where they do the bump in, the plotting of the lights and the sounds, um, as light and sound, and then you start the technical rehearsals. After technical rehearsals, which usually happen over two days, you go from pretty much like 10 in the morning till midnight over um, two to three days. Then you start previews. So you have four previews before you have opening night. Um, the big crunch time as a director is um, after tech, you have one day where you have a dress rehearsal and you have your first preview that evening. Now, then you, it usually happens on a Saturday. You have the Sunday off. And then on the Monday is the first time you've had to make any changes, really. It's the first time you've ever seen the play with all of the lights, all of the set, all of the costumes and the actors put together um, and then you have notes on stage and you really have three hours to make as many changes as you can. You do have that time on stage for the next um, three previews, but um, you are very aware of how many changes you can push on actors as they head towards opening night. Wow, it's a pretty tight timeline for all of that. So that's yeah. fairly intense. If people have just tuned in, I'm speaking with Sarah Goods, who's the Associate Artistic Director at the Melbourne Theatre Company, and we're talking about what a director actually does. Now, Sarah, to move us towards the end of this conversation, I think for a lot of people, their, their concept of a director is probably usually a film director sitting in a chair with a megaphone, shouting at actors, going, no, do it again, do it again, do it this way. Kind of, <laughs> for you as a theatre director, talk to us about that the art of coaxing the performance you've envisaged from actors, including whether that be blocking, whether that be asking them to give a different line reading, whether it be asking them to dig deeper into their emotional reservoir to manifest something on stage. Talk to us about that part of the director's toolkit because for many people I think that's, that's where the real magic is. How do you create... That you've talked about the, the different elements, the design and so forth that come into the stage, but finding, drawing out the, the emotional impact of a performance. As a director, how do you do that? Um, well, I think that's the, that is the most sort of elusive but technical thing as well. And again, I go back to that thing of having to have the ability to be able to go between a, a very organic approach and a very technical approach. And I actually see the act of oh, the you know, the function of a director in that is to be able to translate. Um, and I find that um, actors are just the most extraordinary artists and they're extraordinarily brave and, um, and you know, they take these enormous kind of leaps of faith up there on stage in front of live audiences. And if you, I find that if you're constantly feeding them, feeding them, um, things that help that world become real and filled with atmosphere and filled with um, stuff that they can kind of build their nest with, you know, in order for that character to, to live and to breathe. And at times the big challenge is knowing that whilst with one actor I might refer to a film and say, you know, that moment in the film say, like in Touching the Void, where he has to go down into the crevasse rather than come up, and an actor might go, I know exactly what you mean. 
um, in terms of what that moment means, whereas another actor, you might find that that's totally unhelpful for them, you know, that they need something much more um, structural, something much more specific, something much more kind of like, it's like playing a violin in, a, in, a, in an aggressive way or playing a musical instrument and suddenly stopping. Um, so your, your job really is to be constantly watching and listening and being as present as possible to how that actor works and what is going to be helpful to them in that moment to unlock that moment. And if you're trying something and it doesn't work, then it's, it's your job to try and find another way into that. And sometimes that might end up being just a very technical thing, you know, of just... In this moment, they hear something outside and they look out the window and that that is actually all the moment needs. It doesn't need kind of philosophical, metaphoric <laughs> stuff, you know. I, there's a certain look that an actor gets on their face when I know that I'm just not being helpful at all. It's a sort of glazed over look. <laughs> you go, okay, well, this isn't helping at all and you, and you, tr- you, you try and find um, another way together. But it's very much a two-way thing. I, I always would have been working with people that are... Um, involved, actively engaged in having that conversation. Reinforces that theatre is a collaborative art. The actors are not puppets. They are artists that you are working with together. Yes, now, always. as a final question, uh, as we know, because of COVID-19, uh, the Melbourne Theatre Company has announced the cancellation of all performances until September 2020. So given that you're not working on a show, directing a show at the moment, kind of, does this mean you have time to dream up next year's uh, kind of program the play are you reading lots of plays how are you occupying your time at the moment is what I'm asking well I'm working to we're working towards doing some audio drama recordings um which um will be recording soon but also yes we're working towards next year we're reading um a lot of plays working on some commissions that have come through um but you know what you know what the kind of core um, group at MTC are madly doing are, are kind of coming up with, you know, different scenarios for how theatre may come back. And, and, and because of that, there's a lot of unknown still in terms of, you know, um, uh, what structure we'll have next year. But we are very much working towards, you know, coming back in September and, and working on for there. But balancing that season for next year because um, uh, we have five, st- st- um, five shows being rescheduled into the 2021 season. Um, and then it's about the matrix of what the other productions around that will be and what they need to kind of... Um, do to balance out the season and also do to make the season... Um, kind of work. Well, I, so, look, I was just going to say, yeah. I look forward to finding out what is in store next year. I look forward even more to seeing you in a foyer somewhere soon in September or later and uh, raising a glass of wine together. Not being able to attend, one of, for me, one of the most kind of vibrant and, and important and engaging art forms. is It's been a real... It's almost been like a physical blow, the, the lack of live performance and the, the magic that happens when an audience breathes as, as one and lean in together to share a, a moment of emotion on stage. So I'm really looking forward to it all restarting. I, I know. I'm hoping that our hunger for life and for each other will be um, a, a huge when when this finally is lifted. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will be. Sarah Goods, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, enjoy the rest of your morning. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 